continue with our worship. The first is going to be Acts chapter 6, and the second is going to be 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. We're going to be looking at both of those passages this morning. We've been talking the last several weeks about the church, what the church is, and the fact that the church is not like a spiritual Walmart. It's not like a place you go to get goods and services. It's a family. It's a people, and that we should be approaching our involvement with church from the perspective of seeking unity, seeking to become one with God's people, seeking to become one with Christ. That's the uh, focus that we've been looking at and, and discerning. We've talked about a number of different things, the gospel, the fact that we're living stones, uh, the fact that we, we make decisions as we seek God's will together through a form of congregationalism. We've been looking at all of those things, and we've touched on the fact that the, the reality is what God is trying to do through all of those things is make us one, to bring us to unity with each other. Now, that that's easy said and a little difficult to do sometimes, which is why God gives us leaders who will help us to become one. God gives us pastors, and he also gives us deacons, okay? And today we're going to be looking at deacons from the Bible. Before I, before I ask God to help open our eyes to this truth, particularly to the young men among us this morning, I want to ask you a question. Do you aspire to the office of deacon? Is it one of your goals in life to strive to serve in the church in such a way that the church would confer upon you the title and the recognition that you are a servant, exemplary servant in this church and call you deacon? And if that's never been a question you've heard before, I pray you will consider it this morning as we talk, and I pray that God will work in your hearts to drive you to a point where you long to serve God by serving his people. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we just thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Father, that your spirit would open our eyes to see and would open our, our minds to understand and would bring strength of faith in our hearts to obey. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you look at the news, if you look at the world around us, it is undeniable that there's a lot of catastrophes going on in the world. There's a lot of disease. There's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of hardship. There are people starving. There are people who are being persecuted. There is ethnic cleansing happening uh, in multiple places around the world. On top of that, you have natural disasters, hurricanes, typhoons, tornadoes, earthquakes. Everywhere you look on the nightly news or in the newspaper, you will discover hurting and pain. And there's a number of different agencies that have popped up in order to deal with this. And what is interesting is that the millennial generation, the younger generation, they are seeking to be involved with all kinds of different secular organizations, whether it's digging wells in Africa or whether it's contributing uh, to Red Cross to feed the starving or the poor to take care of the poor. The millennial generation understands that one of the things that we have to do is we have to be involved in doing something to help those who are suffering in this world. And that is a commendable, a commendable desire. 
as I'm reflecting on that, I am reminded of the fact that we have tons of organizations that are not secular, that are church, Christian-type organizations, what we would call parachurch organizations. As I sat at my desk this week thinking about the message this morning, I was able, without looking at the internet or going to any of my notes or looking at any of my files, just from my own mind, I was able to come up with 39 different Christian parachurch ministries. I won't give them all to you. I was thinking of Organizations such as Awana or the Bible Society or the Gideons. I was thinking of YWAM, Youth with a Mission, Youth for Christ, Young Life. I was thinking of Navigators, Disaster Relief, Promise Keepers. There are five that I came up with just off the top of my head right here in Kamloops. You have, of course, the Food Bank. You have the Hospice Association. You've got New Life Community, formerly known as New Life Mission. You have the Christian School, Kamloops Christian School Pregnancy Care Center, it is clear that there are a lot of really good groups doing a lot to address the needs in the world around us. When God wanted to address a need, what did he do? And what did he call for? A short answer to that question is, God called forth some godly men. He appointed them to serve, and he gave them the title deacon. That's what we're looking for here at First Baptist Church. I want you to look with me. First, we're going to start in Acts chapter 6, and then we're going to go to 1 Timothy 3. Acts chapter 6, there is starving, there is poverty, there are bad things happening to the church in Jerusalem in the first century. You'll recall that Jesus is raised from the dead during the Passover season. It was a time of the year in which you have pilgrims from all over the world, Jewish believers who had come to Jerusalem to offer Passover, to offer sacrifice as an act of worship. They have learned during their time in Jerusalem that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come. He's been crucified and he has been raised from the dead. They believe and they join with the church. They join with the group of disciples that are proclaiming the reality that Jesus has come. You have then two groups of Christians that are meeting together as one body of believers, one church. You have the native individuals in Jerusalem, the, the people who live in that city, who live in that community, and then you have the Hellenistic Jews, Hellenism being another word for the Greek uh, type of Jews. They're, they're not Gentiles. They're not considered Gentiles in that respect, but they don't live in Israel. They don't live in Palestine. They're not native of Jerusalem. So they've traveled from the far-flung reaches of the empire, the Roman Empire, to come and worship. So they're referred to as Greek Jews or Hellenistic Jews. Now, they don't have a house. They haven't gone back to where they're from, so they don't have a job, and they don't have money. But they're committed to worshiping with God's people. And at this point in time, we have exactly one church, and it's here in Jerusalem. And this is where they want to be. So there's a bit of a hardship Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In these days, when the, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose by the Hellenists, that is, the Greek Jews, against the Hebrews, that is, the native Palestinian Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The church had been taking up every day a collection of food and been distributing it to the widows and to the poor who were a part of the church. The Greek Jews... Their widows, they felt, were being sort of slighted. They weren't getting their fair share. And so they started to murmur. They started to complain. And this is a very significant event. Hey, you guys aren't treating us right. You guys aren't being fair with us. 
there's the threat that the church could potentially descend into division, bitterness, and acrimony over this dispute. It could be a cause for disunity and division within the church. This is no trivial matter. So, verse 2, the 12, referencing the apostles, they summoned the full number of the disciples. And I just want to pause for a second. This has nothing to do with today's sermon, but I was asked a question at Care Group two weeks ago. What does the Bible say is necessary for a quorum? Verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number. Did you see that? Now, I just want to back off for a second and say that nowhere in the New Testament does it say you have to have the full number of the disciples to make decisions. But nevertheless, it's instructive to note that when the apostles wanted to get something done, they got the entire church together to make some decisions about what needed to happen. I just think that's instructive for us. So, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of a good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What the apostle said was, here's the deal, preaching God's word and spending time praying and interceding on your behalf before the Father is so significant and so important that if we spend all our time looking after the logistics of distributing food to untold, we don't know how many widows we're talking, it probably in the thousands range, if we spend all of our time distributing food to all these widows and all these poor people who've come from all over the empire, then we're not going to have adequate time to do the preaching of the word. We can't neglect the preaching of of the word. So you guys pick out a couple of guys from among yourselves who have a good reputation, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and who have wisdom, okay? And we will appoint them to doing this job. You say, that sounds great, Pastor Joshua, but I am reading this passage here, and I don't see the word deacon anywhere in it. How do you know this is talking about deacons? Again, this is the early church. They're still organizing, so official labels and titles aren't exactly, you know, established at this point. But if you look back at verse 2, it's in the nature of what they are concerned about. We can't be distracted from preaching the word of God in order to, look at what it says here, tail end of verse 2, in order to serve tables. Now, in the Greek, that's one word, not two. Not serve tables, one word. And the Greek word there is diakoneo, from which we get the English word deacon. Literally, the meaning of the English word that you and I use today, deacon, literally is a reference to table waiters, individuals who will serve food, serve in houses, serve masters. They are at their master's beck and call. They are there to serve. So what the apostles are saying is we can't be troubled with this service because we want to preach the word of God. So we need you guys to pick out some men who will diaconeo, who will deacon for us. That's what the word deacon means. We can't deacon. We need to preach. We need some men who will deacon. Okay? So it, it is an office. It is a title but it means literally just to serve. 
Whenever the pastors and I are asking for different individuals or whenever Dale and the nominating committee and I sit down and we begin to look for individuals who will serve in various committees, invariably we'll find somebody who is able-bodied, capable of doing whatever the task, whatever the job it is that we have for them to do. And you know one of the, my most favorite things that, that is the response often when people can't serve? They become exact accountants of what is and isn't their particular spiritual gift. For example, you won't find anywhere in the Bible any spiritual gift called soundboard men. <laughs> you won't find it. It's not there. So I say, hey, brother, we have a need at the soundboard position. We need you to come in. And it's really the most pivotal position in the church on a Sunday morning. Uh, if there's no sound man back there, I've been told on so many occasions that when I get going, I drop the volume a bit. When I'm making a critical point, I'm like, God loves you, God loves you. And I time to drop the volume. Well, we need an astute, observant man. And all he's got to do is just kind of push that slider, that volume slider up a little bit. It's not hard. But it is a service. Okay? And when I ask, can you serve in this way? Do you know what I get? Well, my spiritual gift is, uh, is uh, administration. Really? Yes. Well, I know Jesse Bosa needs some paperwork done in the office. Would you be willing to come in and help out with that on, on a, you know, a midweek day? Well, really, it's more in the domain of logistics. <laughs> okay, I'm pretty sure logistics isn't anywhere in the Bible at this point if we're talking specific spiritual gifts. Nevertheless, hey, I know that we have to order in new Sunday school curriculum on occasion. I know that there are things that we have to do to make sure our Sunday school teachers have what they need. I mean, if you want to be a logistics guy, if you could just sit down with me and the other pastors and consider all of the ministries that happen here on a regular basis and, and be the guy responsible for thinking ahead of time of all the different pieces of the puzzle that have to be put in motion so many weeks in advance, if you could look at the church calendar and help us with logistics, that would be great. To which then they say, well, when I say logistics, well, I'm just going to be watching football this weekend, so I can't come in and help. My spiritual gift is watching football. <laughs> you laugh, but I'm telling you, this is a routine occurrence. When the disciples said, hey, we need some guys to deacon, do you see anywhere in that text anything about what their spiritual gift is? You do not. When they ask these seven guys to serve, do you hear any response from those seven anywhere along the lines of, this isn't in my forte, this isn't in my wheelhouse, I don't take care of poor people, I don't help hand out food? Do you hear anything like that from them? No, you don't. The word of God must be preached and these guys, they're tasked with the responsibility of preaching it. And there are an unbelievable number of needs that the church has. There are all kinds of responsibilities and administrative tasks and logistical tasks and technology that has to be managed. There's all kinds of things that have to be taken care of on a weekly basis. And what the church has needed and has always needed is some men to do some good deaconing, to deacon for us. So they chose these guys, and it mentions seven of them, 
And it says specifically about them who it was that they were looking for. It says in verse 3, Pick out from among yourselves seven men of a good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. When they say we, they mean we together as the church. We can appoint these men to this position of deaconing, of being deacons, of diakoneo, serving. So, when they say good reputation, full of the Spirit, and wisdom... They're putting out some basic qualifications. Not just anybody will do. We're looking for a few godly men. Let's look and see what Paul says specifically about the qualifications. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look here at verse 8. I had Lynn read the first section there because it talks about pastors or elders. But when it comes to the section detailing the requirements for deacons, it uses that little word likewise, which is a reference back to what has come before. It's a reference back to the elders, back to the pastors. And it makes the statement, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a good task. Okay, so jump on down to where it says deacons, deacons likewise, okay? So the idea here is that there would be men who would say, you know what? I want a deacon. I want to serve God's people. I want to serve God by serving God's people. I want to serve in the church. I aspire to that job. So that's the first qualification. You got to want it. And yet I'm telling you as a young man going to church and in high school, and even when I was right out of high school, I can't recall at one point in time, anyone coming up to me and asking me, do you desire to deacon? The question that I was routinely asked, which I'm sure many of you young people have been asked as well, is what do you want to be when you grow up? What, what do you want to do after university? What kind of job do you want to have? And it's amazing because we'll say all sorts of things. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a fireman. I want to do RCMP. Those are all noble professions. Did you know that in the service of any of those professions, you in no way, shape, or form exclude yourself from deaconing in the church? We have some amazing deacons here. Dr. Tom, I'm guessing in his mid-80s, I don't know exactly, still operating at the hospital. He's a doctor. He's a surgeon. And he deacons in this church and has done so for decades. You have to want it. And so while I'm happy to ask some of you young people, what is it you want to be when you grow up? I want you to understand you can also be a deacon despite whatever your interest or pursuit. You can aspire to that. And I challenge you to it. Want this. Want this. We ask the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we immediately think what type of, when we ask that question, we're alluding to what kind of career do you want to do? But coming back to the qualifications of deacon, the question has to be asked, what do you want to be? Because a deacon is first and foremost a kind of man that does a kind of thing that is a certain way before he becomes a deacon. Look at the text, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. That is, they have to be respectable. They're not goofballs. They're, it's not that they can't ever tell a joke or have a good time, but there's a seriousness and a purpose to their life. Okay, They must be dignified, not double-tongued. 
not the individual who will say one thing to this person and then the exact opposite to this person, and you're never really sure what it is that they're getting at because they're always contradicting themselves from one, time, from one occasion to the next. They cannot be that sort of way. Their yes needs to be yes, their no needs to be no. What they say to this individual needs to be exactly what they say to that individual. When they say something, you know you can trust it because it doesn't change, it's consistent, and it's always the same. They must be dignified, they must be straight shooters. That's Texan paraphrase of this particular passage, okay? Not double-tongued, i.e. straight shooters, okay? They must not be addicted to much wine. They must have self-mastery. They cannot be individuals who experience addiction, who are routinely enslaved by temptations. They must have mastery over their own behavior, self-control. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain. They can't be individuals who are in love with money. They have to understand that there's a higher value in serving and that in their service, there is such worth that no dollar figure could be attached to it. And they're not even thinking about it that way. And they're not greedy, particularly for gain that is corrupt or illegitimate. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Young people, when you think about what university you want to go to, when you think about what job you want to have, do you ever have a pastor or any Sunday school teacher or anybody stop and ask you, is it your ambition in life to be a Christian with a clear conscience? In other words, you know how you live in the quiet of your own life. I mean, I, I, I'm friends with you. We hang out in care group. We may get together at men's breakfast. We may routinely fellowship together. And yet, I'm not with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When you're alone in your own room, in your own house, in your own apartment, does your behavior and your conduct match what you know the Word of God says? And you can just pause and ask yourself this question. Does my conscience bother me? It's this amazing sense, just like the sense of sight, just like the sense of hearing, just like the sense of touch. It's this amazing sense that God has put in our souls where if we live in such a way that we contradict what we know to be right, a little voice starts to nag. That is an amazing gift from God. No other creature on the earth has it. You and I, we've been blessed to know whether or not what we are doing and how we are living is consistent with the way God would have us to live. And so I ask you, is it your desire to be simple in the sense that how you live is clear and clean and honest before God? Deacons live that way. They live a simple life. Not simple in the sense that they are foolish, but simple in the sense that what you see on a Sunday morning is truly what you get. They are transparent. Okay? Deacons are dignified, not double-tongued, not enslaved to wine or any other forms of addiction, not greedy for dishonest gain. They hold the mystery of their faith, belief in Jesus Christ, with a clear conscience. Now look at verse 10. It says, let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The idea here in this particular text is something which I think is almost a forgotten, a forgotten reality in churches these days. We so emphasize my own private life and my own personal space, 
we emphasize privacy and allegedly the right to privacy to the exclusion of transparency and authenticity. I'm reminded a, a number of weeks ago I mentioned to you uh, the, the pastor from the United Church who was an atheist and was the subject of what she considered to be an unprecedented inquiry into her religious beliefs. She being an atheist presiding over communion and baptism. How dare you ask me what I believe or don't believe about God? I want you to know that is nowhere in the scriptures. A number of years ago, there was an architect, a modernist architect, who designed modernist buildings, and he made the statement, form ever follows function. Form follows function. And so he would design buildings that looked like what they were supposed to be doing. You know, and he, he, was, he was one of the fathers of the modernist architectural movement. A number of years later, Steve Jobs appropriated that and said, when we design Macintosh or Apple products, we're going to have this as our motto, form follows function. Talking about building computers. If you talk to any sort of electronic engineer or uh, electric mechanical engineer or a computer guy, they will tell you that that doesn't seem very true from their perspective. A computer, as the thinking goes, is designed to process bits and pieces of data, and you put some input in, and it spits some output out, and it's got a processor, and it's whirring and clicking and doing all the little things that it needs to be doing. And so as a machine that is clicking and whirring and processing data, you'd expect it to be a big, bulky, boxy sort of contraption with easy access for when those transistors and microprocessors fault and break and fall apart so they can get in there and replace that stuff, right? Easy access, big, bulky machines. Kind of like what we saw in the 80s and the 90s when it came to the personal computer. And yet Steve Jobs said form follows function, and he built these sleek, slim pleasant-looking devices that were nice to hold in your hand and impossible for the average PC or computer person to take apart and work on because of how he crammed everything into these nice, attractive-looking little things. And so they mocked him. Steve Jobs, form follows function. Your devices don't look like anything like what they do. To which he responded, the goal of our design devices is to give the user an incredibly pleasant experience. More so than just processing data, they have to be pleasing to the eye. They have to be wonderful to touch and to hold in your hand. They need to respond intuitively to the way the user works with them. The goal of our devices is not to process data. The goal of our devices is to be a delight to those who would use them. In that sense, form follows function. Now, what you see here in this text is there's a particular form, there's a particular character to the deacon as he strives to fulfill his service or to fulfill his function. He is to be a man of honor and character and because he is seeking to serve in the church, of course, of course, he should be open to the scrutiny of those who are in the church. And Paul says it very clearly, they are to be tested first. 
Nobody gets to just become a deacon. There is a process. And the process looks like this. When all of the people in this church look at your life, when they consider who you are, how you serve, and the type of character that you have, it has to pass the standards that they are expecting of their deacons. Standards that are laid out right here in this passage. And if you desire to be a deacon, then you desire that scrutiny. Because you understand, first and foremost, it's who I am as a man. It's the example of my life that others are going to be looking at and watching. That comes first. The function, the duty, the service that I perform flows out of that. So they ought to be able to look and see and know who you are. Paul's statement here is, let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, what can we expect? If we're deacons serving, what can we expect for our service? Jump on down to verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain. Now, just stop there. Those two verbs are in the present active. Now, your translation will make it seem like it's just a, a sort of an accomplished verb, like it's just something that just happens, almost like it happens once. If they serve, they've served. And then they gain whatever it is that they gain. But the reality is, is in that Greek text, it's in the present active indicative. It's an ongoing sort of activity. It's not a one-time deal. It's an all-the-time deal. So what the verse is really saying is for those who are serving well as deacons are gaining a good standing. So number one, it's not just a position where you come and you sit at a table and you preside over business at a deacon's meeting once a month. It's not a board function so much that the Bible is looking for. It's not rubber stamping so much that Christ is calling us to. There are decisions that we make together collectively as leadership, but that is not the first and foremost thing that deacons are called to. They are first and foremost called to service, an active service, not a one-time service. Those who are serving are gaining, and what is it that they are gaining for all their time and all their energy and all their effort? Look, they are gaining a good standing for themselves, number one, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The first thing that they're getting when they serve, as they serve, they are getting the recognition of service, of serving well. I go back to the example of the iPhone, Mac products. If the product has done its job well, and it's been a delight to you to interact with that product, is there any degree of loyalty, brand loyalty? How many of you are in here, and don't raise your hands, and don't shout it back at me, but just think to yourself, how many of you in here are the type of person where you say, I only use Mac? About half of us. And as I ask that question, there are some of you in here who are saying, when it comes to my personal computing, computing needs, I'm only going to use a PC because I can't make heads or tails of those Macs. You know it's true. Brand loyalty. Well, depending on your experience with your device, would you not say that that particular brand of device has gained a standing for you? Deacons who serve well by virtue of the fact that they are serving well are going to be respected. They are going to be honored. They are going to be upheld within the church as individuals whom you should seek to imitate with the way that you live your life just by virtue of how they're serving and what they're doing. They're going to gain a good standing. And not only that, but they're going to also gain 
great confidence in the faith. They have trusted in Jesus. They have looked to him for wisdom as they have sought to address disputes within the church to meet the needs of those who are hurting and suffering, to discern what is a real need versus what is an imagined need, to address those items which are really priorities versus those which can wait a little longer. As they've had to sift through all of that in their service, inevitably they've been drawn closer to the Lord. They've grown deeper in their faith. The desire to serve is a good desire. The qualities to to serve are righteous qualities. The interest in living a life that is transparent for the church automatically brings blessing to the church as you seek to honor Christ. And the reward of that is that you do gain honor and you do grow deeper in your faith. Young people, think back over history. When you look at history books, when you consider the great speeches that are given today and the individuals who are referenced in those speeches, what names do you hear? What heroes are held forth? You probably hear names like Churchill or Roosevelt or Trudeau. I wouldn't put Trudeau in the category of Roosevelt, nevertheless. Those are some of the names that you hear. These are the people that we think are great. Can I share with you some names that aren't really ever talked about? Can I share with you some names of some individuals who are really great, and the only time you'd ever hear them is if there was a pastor who preached a sermon on deacons? Let me tell you about a couple of men who will live for all of eternity, praised and held up as examples by Scripture and by God the Father himself. Number one, Stephen. In this first group of deacons, Stephen... This was a man who was among the first to be martyred. In fact, he probably was the first to be martyred. He stood up and he boldly proclaimed Christ when everyone else was fearful of the persecution. And the end result of his boldly pro- bold proclamation of Christ was that the crowd, enraged, crucified him. He knew it was tense. He knew that relations were, were strained. And yet his love for his fellow countrymen urged him to proclaim the gospel knowing that it almost certainly meant his death, and he did it anyway. One of his associates, also among the first seven to be named deacons, an individual by the name of Philip. God worked in Philip in such a way that he found himself on a road leading down to Africa where he met the eunuch who served at the court of Queen Candace in Ethiopia. And this guy says, I can't understand this Bible verse. Who's going to help me understand it? And Philip says, I can help you figure it out, buddy. And he begins to share the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch who eventually goes back to Africa, shares the gospel with this lady named Queen Candace. And to this very day, if you were to ever travel to Ethiopia or any number of different countries in Africa, you will find churches all over the place that take, for their namesake, this man named Philip. Philip Baptist Church, Philip Methodist Church in Africa. Leaving aside the scriptural candidates that are referenced, and we have several other really good examples, I'm going to talk to you about another individual, a deacon remembered for, in history for what he did, Lawrence of Rome, 258, before Constantine comes to power, when Christianity is still being persecuted, his pastor was executed by the prefect, the emperor of Rome. The emperor came to him and said, 
I will spare your life if you give me all the treasure of the church. What do you say? And Lawrence of Rome said, you got a deal. Give me three days. I'll go gather up all the treasures of the church. And he did. And on the third day, he returned with the sick and the hurting, the broken, the poor, the lame. He brought them into the emperor's court and he said, you wanted the church's treasure. Here are the people whom I have served faithfully as a deacon. And the emperor said, you're all going to be executed. To which Lawrence responded, we know. These people were so blessed by his deacon ministry. They accepted what was certainly a known fate of martyrdom just so they could stand with their deacon. Lawrence of Rome. How about Athanasius of Alexandria? By this point in history, Constantine has come to power. The Roman Empire is becoming a quasi-Christian nation. At this point in time, in 350, there's a deacon by the name of Athanasius. He serves in the African church alongside his pastor who has the name Alex. And yes, the church is meeting in Alexandria in, in Egypt. And so there's a lot of names here. Try to keep them all straight. You got Athanasius, you got Pastor Alex, you got the church at Alexandria. And then the heretic that they confront is a man by the name of Arius. Okay, so you got Arius, Alexandria, Alex, and Athanasius. Athanasius is the deacon. They condemned the teachings of Arius who taught essentially that Jesus was not co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father, but was the highest of all created beings, thus denying the innate deity of Jesus Christ. It is a destructive heresy that Arius is promoting. Alex says, we got to do something about this, and Athanasius says, I'm right there by your side. Even if it kills us, we'll stand up for it. Many in the Roman church at that time agreed with Athanasius. The pressure to conform was so great that the pastor, Alex, began to waver in his convictions. But Athanasius said, no, I can't do it. I'm going to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Excommunicated five times, chased from one country to the next, ultimately gaining vindication at the Second Council of Nicaea, Athanasius picked up the torch of the gospel when his pastor weakened in his faith. That's a deacon. We go a little bit further on. Francis of Assisi. I'm sure you've all heard the quote, although you probably couldn't remember who it was that said it. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Do you know who said that? Francis of Assisi. It's widely attributed to him. Scholars will dispute it. Let's assume for a second that he didn't actually say it. If it's true that he didn't actually say it, do you know who it is that's attributing it to him? the people whom he loved and served. That's some kind of ministry that you've got where the people you serve will lie on your behalf after you're dead, eh? Make you out to be a better person than you actually are. Francis of Assisi said this. No, he didn't. Well, yes, he did. He served his people at a time in which deacon ministry was seen as a stepping stone to some other form of ministry, such as priest or bishop or cardinal. Francis of Assisi said, service is great, and I will serve my people. We have these men as examples. And as I reflect on these individuals, I am reminded of the deacons in this church who have gone before, like Tom Massey, Percy Howard, Harry Little. Tom Massey who as an evangelist was always gathering people together in this church. 
Percy Howard, who fought his way in World War II across Juneau Beach in Normandy, where some of the toughest fighting happened, fought his way all the way to Germany, came home after World War II, hung up his rifle, hung up his combat boots, picked up a Bible, and instead of combat boots, took gospel tracts and shoved them in his pocket. Served for a number of years as a caretaker of Sonny Bray Bible Camp. Worked as a prison guard here at KRCC. Served here in this church as a deacon for many decades. Many of you, as I'm saying this, you're shaking your heads. You know and remember Percy with love. Harry Little, living in Vancouver. Dr. Daw comes to pastor this church which had, at that time, in 1959, gone through a a sad split. He calls up his buddy, Harry. He says, Harry, I'm just really worried about this church, First Baptist. I don't know if the old girl's going to make it. Harry Little resigns his job the next day, sells his house in Vancouver, packs up his family, and comes to stand beside Dr. Daw. And he's still with us. Many of you have met him. Many of you know and love him. These are some amazing men who have given rise and they, they have instructed and re- raised up other amazing men. I'm thinking of guys like Joe Riley, John Dykstra. These are men who it doesn't matter what I say, you know, we have a leak in the roof. We need more space in the nursery. Is there any way we can put a divider in the lower auditorium? I say, hey, can we have something done construction-wise? And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this will be a project. It'll take us the next couple of months. Like, that week, it's done. Like, instantly. I I mean, men, you've done renos, yes? You understand. I I do renos, and it takes, like, six weeks. My house is total chaos. My wife says, when is this ever going to be over? Our deacon's done. Younger men, great men. I'm thinking of James Casson. When I was candidating to be the pastor here at this church, I sit down at the search committee table. James Casson pulls out, I think, like 10 or 15 pages of deep theological questions. Yes, you're a nice man. Yes, you have some beautiful-looking daughters. But not good enough for my church. Do you hold to the word? Yes, I do. Okay, let's find out. People ask me, so did James ever vote for you? I don't actually know what the vote was. I hope he did. I, I got the majority, so I'm here. So, I mean, and I admire him. Even if he disagreed, he, even if he did, did disagree, as a true deacon, he surrenders to the service of his church. I'm thinking of guys like Russ Miller, who, and many of you haven't gotten the opportunity to know him, but at Bridge Baptist Church, when we were doing church out of a box, having a set up every single Sunday, he wound and unwound and rewound so much sound cable. I'm thinking like 10,000 miles of sound cable was wrapped and unwrapped by this man. Or Keith Milne, who would always stay after the service and diligently count the money twice. Three times sometimes if we came up with different counts, which we are prone to do in leadership. Well, I got this much. Well, I got, okay, let's do it again. These are great men. And we're also grateful for men who have blessed us with their service in the past. I'm thinking of guys like Glenn Totten 
Ralph Vanderheide, Dan Thomas. Young men, listen to me. Do you want to be great? Well, look around. Great men walk among us. Men who serve, men who deacon. You say, well, I want to be great as a firefighter. Well, I want to be great as a doctor or a lawyer. You can do all of those things and you can still deacon. The apostles were arguing amongst themselves. They said, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And they came to Jesus and they said, we want you to do us a favor. John, we want him to sit on your right. John and James' mother came to him and said, I want my two sons to sit on either side of you. And he said, you want to know who's great in the kingdom of heaven? He makes this statement. He called the disciples to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You know what the Greek word there is? Deacon, diakone. Whoever would be great among you must be your deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be deacon of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came not to be deaconed. The Son of Man came to deacon. That's greatness. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, I want to be great, Jesus has given you instructions. We have the promise from 1 Timothy 3, chapter 11. And the opportunity is here. Your God has not left you without an avenue for achieving distinction and honor. The question is, will you deacon? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for giving us these ministers, these servants in the church. We thank you, Lord, that they take care of us, that they look after our needs, that they protect us, Lord. They protect us from pastors who have bad theology. We thank you, Lord, that they take care of our property. We thank you, Lord, that they are always visiting us when we are sick or hurting. We thank you for these deacons. And God, I pray that if there are any here today, young men, middle-aged men, Lord, who have ever hungered for something more, who have ever longed to do something great, I pray, God, that you would begin to work in their hearts and call them to consider deaconing in your church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand as you're able?
coming day, Lord, we wait for the return of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, God, that we would be found faithful doing what is truly honorable and beautiful in your eyes, regardless of whether or not it is recognized by the world around us. I pray, God, that you would begin raising up the next generation of deacons, servants, Lord, who have a heart to serve you. I pray, Father, that you would work in their hearts this morning if there are any among us who have the desire to be great, that you would call them to serve. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.